Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Comfort food seems comforting until you feel really sick and oozy the next day. But so you can trust your taste buds once you have listened to them enough. And once you've gotten far enough away from the super intense flavors that they've adjusted to be more accepting of an orange is sweet. Uh, a saltine cracker, that starchiness is actually kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not used to the chocolate chip cookie level of sweetness. That was Jennifer DePew, a registered dietitian, a nutritional specialist, and a fellow substacker. You will hear my entire conversation with Jennifer right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance, and asking you, no matter what, to please share the link far and wide. And now, let's get back to the show. The last three years have taught some folks to no longer reflexively trust the science. But that concept doesn't begin and end with vaccines or masks or lockdowns, not even close. For one thing, it can and should be applied to all areas of science. For example, GMOs, climate assessments, the environment in general, man-made chemicals and more. And once you've taken this red pill, everything is open to scrutiny. And this might eventually lead you to wonder, so how much can I trust the science when it comes to nutritional advice? And to help answer that question, I'm here with registered dietitian, nutrition specialist, and fellow substacker, Jennifer DePew. Jennifer, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you, Mickey. Glad I to be here. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. We've interacted on Substack, and it's great to actually hear each other's voice, I hope. Um, now, before we jump into the topic, um, I wanted to, it would be, I think it would be helpful if you just loosely explain to me and the listeners of sort of the obstacles you've overcome to get to the point now where you are a, a respected nutrition specialist. I have had a rocky road a bit because of my genetic health issues that I kind of had to figure out to get healthier. And in my struggle with 
various autoimmune and hypothyroid type of problems, excess weight, fibromyalgia type of pain. Um, I did eventually get better, but it took me trial and error and mistakes. And, um, and I kind of lost my job along the way. Medical marijuana was involved. Um, but the hyperthyroidism was a problem because it does cause reckless thinking and weird behavior. And the endocrinologist didn't necessarily tell me about it. Um, I had taken high dose iodine to help with hypothyroid symptoms, but I didn't realize I needed selenium. And so I had shifted myself hyperthyroid. And then wow. some of my other genetic problems were also causing mental symptoms that weren't really being diagnosed, just being called crazy. And it was really frustrating. They ended up putting me on a psych drug at one point that made everything a lot worse. Akathisia. Um, I ended up getting divorced and that was us maybe a needed change, but also led to my kind of traveling and being homeless for a while, living out of my car which I really enjoyed seeing the country and experiencing fresh air. You, you don't realize how stuffy you get in a house all of the time. Wow. That's fascinating because um, for obvious reasons, the term homeless does not have a positive connotation. But if we go back not that long ago in human history, people often just traveled about. And the concept of having a home was you could have one or you could not have one, but you would be, as you said, out sort of seeing things, meeting people. But I, I want to also just bring it back. Uh, thank you for being honest about that whole background, because it dovetails with a lot of other guests I've had on who have had to um, navigate what can fall under the broad umbrella of corporate science where you know psychotropic drugs for example and and misdiagnosis in the medical industrial complex so your your background intersects a lot of these and when i asked you just uh initially you know can we trust the science or who can we trust when it comes to nutritional advice i'm going to share exactly what you said you said ancient wisdom from traditional methods of food preparation and ma and mom and grandma wisdom handed down over many generations, not just today's standards. So perhaps we can pull back a little bit and begin this conversation with me asking you, who can we absolutely cross off the list of not trusting for nutritional guidance in the year 2023? Well, sadly, we cannot trust academic research, medical doctors, the alphabet soup agencies of the WHO, the CDC, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations. They all, they talk so much about misinformation and disinformation, but it's been decades a century really of misinformation by the pharmaceutical industry and kind of covering up the importance of nutrients, magnesium, iodine, vitamin C, vitamin D. Many nutrients kind of get looked at singly as, oh, maybe this can be used medicinally, but that's just not the way nutrients work. They are as a team. And so a lot of the academic research uses a medical approach 
for team players. You know, we cannot isolate the shortstop and say, oh, that shortstop played a great game. You know, the yeah. shortstop is yeah. not going to be able to play baseball all by him, him or herself. No, abs um, absolutely. And so would you, when you, when you talk about these large, well, individuals, some, like you said, uh, medical doctors, et cetera, and then these large organizations, the, the alphabet soup of the WHO and all that, I would assume then that, like, full industries and corporate powers like the sugar industry would just fit neatly into this category of don't be asking them for nutritional guidance. They have been found to have fraudulent research from about 50 years ago was revealed and I don't necessarily have the links handy. I would have to, you know, look for that. Okay. Um, but they pinned heart disease on eggs and cholesterol when really it's too much sugar and carbohydrates. So the basic food groups initially had just been fruits, veggies, dairy, meat, bread group. And it was just kind of to help farm wives make balanced meals. And it cut kind of changed into the pyramid that pushes so much carbohydrates. And it's honestly hard to lose weight. It's hard to not be diabetic when the diet plan is being recommended and made at cafeterias and stuff as 55% of the calories from carbohydrates. Wow. We might do better with a moderate low carb diet and or the high protein kind of carnivore diets. I'm not really a fan of because I do think that can be hard on the kidneys eventually. Um, I use a more moderate carb diet with a little bit more fats from like avocado and nuts and a little olive oil, a little coconut oil. Okay. All right. So, so now you mentioned that they kind of fudged the sugar industry kind of fudged research. So I, I want to share something that when I was doing a little digging before speaking to you, I found um, an allegedly trustworthy website of uh, Harvard University and they offer their um, kind assistance into how to find good nutritional sourcing in the media and via uh, studies. And they talk about how you have to check if if a, a given study fits into the entire body of evidence. Um, is, is the story you're reading reporting on just results of a single study? How large is the study? Was it done animals or humans? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also, most importantly, what type of study, um, you know, whether cohort study, randomized control trials. Now, what they conveniently left off that list, which I, which I would assume you were alluding to with the sugar industry, is you want to ask who funded the study because um, you mentioned to me about how medical research journals are often complicit in some of this fraudulent science. Okay, thanks. I agree. Those are all very good points about medical journals. Um, looking for the evidence trail, the large number of articles saying similar things rather than the random new thing saying, oh, look, this is so different. We have to do the exact opposite of what we said we were doing for the last hundred years. Maybe question that. <laughs> um, and the fraudulent pay to publish is a concern, you know, ghost writing by, um, there's doctors that have their names on thousands of journal articles. 
you know, to really do the work of a research article, you can't be doing thousands of them in your life, really. So they get paid to stick their academic name on, on a paper that might be saying something about a drug or, or negative things about a nutrient study. Um, so looking at the design of the nutrient study is also important. Is it a solo nutrient when really a team of nutrients is needed like magnesium, vitamin D and vitamin K all work along with the calcium and magnesium? So any isolated study with one nutrient is not gonna look as good. And then other times, whether it was a mistake or whether somebody is trying to skew the information is not always easy to see. Radioactive iodine was used as a treatment, but it is a poison and it causes toxicity. And in the 1940s, 1950s, there's been iodine research that was just wrong um, in its assumption that sufficiency and less thyroid activity meant that the iodine was harmful. You know, it just meant that all of a sudden the thyroid was caught up and it was sufficient. Um, and ever since those 1940s, 1950s Wolf-Chaikoff um, effect has been cited and promoted and people are treated with too little iodine because it's all based on this, oh, iodine is so bad because it caused the thyroid to stop working as hard. But it was sufficiency. They were just misidentifying sufficiency and normal thyroid function from having been iodine deficient and kind of overactive while it was catching up. Okay. So a lot of research is going to be wrong if it's based on this wrong iodine information and it's still cited and then the participants in any kind of study they wouldn't be screened for iodine deficiency or magnesium deficiency a lot of nutrients are kind of hard to screen for so your participants are going to look like oh they're all average they're all normal but we didn't really screen them for important nutrient deficiencies. So they're going to, some of them be low and some of them be normal. And that's going to make your experimental population be mixed instead of cohesive. So let me, let me ask you a question there. When you point out like a glaring um, error like that, from your knowledge on this, is, is this just pure, poorly supervised research or is this sometimes used when corporate science wants a specific outcome that's going to make them more money, that they may cut corners that they know are going to um, facilitate the outcome that they want, or a little of both? Oh, that, yes, I think that's part of it with iodine. The radioactive iodine is, expect, uh, is, is a profit-making treatment used to kill cancer and, and screen for cancer. And oh, if the person is iodine sufficient, it's not going to work as well. Okay. It works in iodine deficient people. So it's like they want deficient people so that their treatment works better to find cancer. And oh, by the way, deficiency in iodine can cause cancer, but we're not talking about that. Yes, I think I think the profit motive is mixed in there. All right. So now I'm um you gave me such great notes of things to focus on too. So I don't want to 
I'm not coming at this with the same expertise as you. So when I'm looking at these notes and I was formulating questions, I don't want to assume how how important each one is to you in terms of answering this general question of how much can the um, the ever awakening public um, trust the science when it comes in particular to nutritional advice. So where would you go from here after, after we've talked a little bit about um, the alphabet soup, medical doctors, the sugar industry, the, the, the specific example of the iodine research, research in general, um, what else should, should um, everyday people be aware of when it comes to how this, the funnel by which this, this advice is being brought to them? Well, the profit motive, uh, sadly, the food supply itself is not really healthy. And in part because it's delicious, you know, they want us to eat it. They want us to buy it. They make it delicious and kind of addictive. Mm. And then, you know, kind of oh we're fat and overweight and lazy it's like no we're being fed kind of addictive food and not enough iodine not enough magnesium and without iodine or magnesium we're going to have trouble with blood sugar we're going to have trouble with energy level we're going to kind of be tired um and the agricultural chemicals glyphosate as an herbicide was initially studied as an antibiotic and mineral chelator. It is honestly really harmful for our microbiome, our gut, and for our mitochondria that provide us energy and maybe adding to um, neurological like brain problems like Alzheimer's. And we sadly I mean, how to avoid it when everybody needs to eat? There's just, it's too, too prevalent. You know, yes, you can avoid it, but you really have to spend some money. You have to cook your own food. It's difficult to avoid the processed um, chemicals and uh, pesticides. But I do think the whole food is going to help more than avoiding all like fresh fruits and veggies because they have some pesticides. Um, choosing, choosing what you can buy in the organic section is gonna be helpful. And more specifically, maybe avoiding the really, really delicate fruits and veggies that use more pesticides like strawberries and grapes or um, the leafy celery lettucey type of things i do try to buy organic for those um and i uh and i guess it's sad because they're trying to increase yield but they're decreasing nutrient content and there was an article that even promoted that as kind of a highlight oh but we increased yield so it doesn't matter that the food itself is less nutritious the, the total yield of nutrients is the same but if you're feeding people less nutritious food that's like you said you just grew a crop of sawdust like, wow so let me let me make sure i understand that so if if um 
let's just say we were talking about lettuce for the sake of this conversation. Per head of lettuce, there are less nutrients because of the chemicals being used. But because the industry are growing more heads of lettuce, collectively, the right amount of nutrients are in there, but not accepting the obvious reality that people are still eating the same amount of lettuce, thereby getting less nutrients from that lettuce. Did I understand that? Yes, yes. Yeah, not specifically about lettuce, but similar. You know, uh, your, your iceberg lettuce is kind of mostly yeah, water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why that popped in my head. Maybe just like, as a math example, it seems so simple. But you're right. Yeah. Like I'm actually a big fan of greens. Like I, I love kale and arugula and all these different greens. So, so I could have used any one of them. And 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 I like how you mentioned the dovetail of how this isn't just about eating because when you go to the supermarket and you go into the quote unquote organic or natural aisles or single little corner that they have, um, which is real interesting that they have one corner that says natural, therefore implying that everything else in the store is unnatural, but that's kind of proving your point, but it's more money to do that. And so therefore we have to factor in so many other aspects of, of, um, the world we live in where if people if cost of living is higher inflation is up and wages are down and it's it's harder for individuals to make the um the commitment to pay for this even though their life could depend on it yeah yeah the other big one to not trust in the grocery store is pretty much everything in the boxes the processed foods the the tubs the mixed creamy uh, dairy substitutes, you know, even if it says organic and natural, the more processed it is, the research is really finding that it's not healthy for us. It's not supporting health. Um, It's, you know, the the more the food processing changes that food from its whole state, the less it seems to help our body. Um, Ultra processed food would be like the Pringles potato chip compared to the processed, you know, potato chip is still kind of more of a slice of potato. The Pringles is potato ground up into, you know, like potato flour and seasonings added, and then it's super high heat crisped into that little funny shape. Um, So any of these super high heat crisping, you know, a garbanzo chip, is going to be unhealthy just like your pringles potato chip just because it's made out of garbanzo is not necessarily making that high heat puffed styrofoamy texture chip healthy for you even and even if even if they use quote-unquote organic garbanzo beans the, the processing is is essentially just neutralizing the benefits of paying for organic yeah and or making it a negative turning it into a negative wow yeah wow, wow. um so um, if you don't mind, I'm going to segue into um, asking your expertise into terms of, of who people can trust and steps they can take in, in the face of what you just laid out there, because this is good information for people to recognize. And even if even I could speak for myself, that you can't be reminded enough times to go more whole foods over processed foods because the accessibility of processed foods can often make even the most informed person make some poor choices. And so this, so reminding people that you have to have that discipline, as you mentioned, you have to take the time to cook for yourself. And that, that means 
other things are going to not get done because this is so important. So I really appreciate you giving your expertise and reminding people or refreshing in some people that this, this information is crucial. But when you get to the point of like, all right, we can trust nutritional science as much as we can trust Pfizer science. Fine. So then what do we do? Who, who do we trust? Learn to listen to yourself um, with that caveat, that hesitation of, I can't really trust myself around chocolate chip cookies or whatever, you know, you can't trust yourself around. Just don't buy them is my solution. Because I do have problems with emotional overeating. Part of my genetics makes me a little bit more prone to either anorexia or binge eating. And comfort food seems comforting until you feel really sick and oozy the next day. But so you can trust your taste buds once you have listened to them enough. And once you've gotten far enough away from the super intense flavors that they've adjusted to be more accepting of an orange is sweet uh, a saltine cracker that starchiness is actually kind of sweet mm -hmm. um if you're not used to the chocolate chip cookie level of sweetness so the more you can get away from the intensely spicy dorito the more you know your standard oregano and a little bit of hot pepper is going to seem you know nice and spicy and um so trust your taste buds once you've kind of educated yourself to know that we can't really trust our taste buds around <laughs> salty, crunchy potato chips or salty, um, salty anything. Salt is something that we crave and like usually. Yes. But combine it with the greasy crunchy and it's like setting off kind of a um, morphine-like exorphin is the word i believe exorphins and also ice cream the, the creamy sweet fatty sweet donuts that also sets off a morphine like effect wow of exorphins so stimulating the dorito type of spicy glutamates can also be over exciting so that can be actually addictive in a dopamine type of level where we want more of that mountain dew dopamine rush from the um, all, uh, from the sweeteners, whether sugar or alternative sweeteners, both of them can be kind of addictive. So we got to learn what our um, Achilles heel is, what, what our weak spot is, what our kryptonite is. You know, I do have crunchy, salty, man, I will overeat it. <laughs> but, but you're also saying that, that, Besides un knowing your individual kryptonite, that certain certain um, flavors, textures, etc., in general with humans can create um, almost like a pain-killing, morphine-like, calming, like really putting the comfort in the phrase comfort food, where we, we may not even know why we're craving this, but our body knows that, oh no, if you eat that, we're going to be chill for a while. We'll pay for it later, but right now we'll be chill. And that, that short-term um, satisfaction can override our common sense when it comes to our eating choices. Yeah. So who can we trust the ancient wisdom? of diet balance. When I looked around the world, cultural diets, meal patterns tend to have repetition, you know, whether there's kind of a flatbread starch, whether 
there's usually some sort of acidic salsa or um, tangy pickle, chutney, something acidic. Acidic helps older people digest better to have a little bit of acidic lemon juice or apple cider vinegar in a meal. Um, and the uh, food preparation methods also, you know, if they've been doing it 2,500 years, I think they're onto something, you know? <laughs> Fermented tofu type products are healthy. Modern soy is got too many anti-nutrients that kind of bind with other nutrients and just aren't, they, going too fast into a vegan diet and or other new type of restricted diets can lead to deficiencies and or other symptoms because some of those plant foods really are hard to digest. And so the fermenting, soaking overnight, other types of traditional food preparation methods are something that we really can trust and should use more of and um, get back to what works for our gut microbiome, what works for us, instead of just what works for the profit of a snack food company. So, so when you say ancient wisdom, you're talking, like you said, you're going back 2,500 years, for example, and it's not to say that we haven't learned anything in 2,500 years. It's just that they, from, from what I'm learning, is that there was way less, if any, temptation back then for those who are creating these, these um, dietary concepts to do so for mass production and mass profits. So therefore, they, would, they were motivated by this beautiful blend of nutrition and taste. And to lean on that tradition makes a whole lot of sense when we know inherently, no matter where you stand on the ideological spectrum, you know inherently that a corporation exists to maximize profit. So to, to trust a, a, a tradition that's been around for thousands of years or to trust a board of directors of a corporation, it should seem obvious as to who is going to make choices that are more um, amenable to the average human body. Yeah. So trust mom and grandma. Yeah, yeah. But, but but you mentioned to me that it, what's interesting is that that mom and grandma could have the greatest intentions, but if they are if ensuing generations of moms and grandmas were raised on the 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 standard American diet, they need to kind of reevaluate some of that too. Yeah, we need to to value mom and 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 be be okay with questioning what she was told because she may have been misinformed yes yes yeah because because perhaps that generation was even more apt to quote unquote trust the science to bring it back to our basic uh concept here i do want to go back to one thing though to, to, because i i do find this topic really important for people to know you you spoke eloquently on on taste buds but could you just talk a little bit about the fact that that most people, when you say the term taste buds, immediately think of their tongue and their mouth, but there are taste buds in our digestive tract and elsewhere in the body. Oh, good. Thank you for reminding me. Um, that's a huge thing, actually, that the medical world needs to 
it's on the cutting edge of research, basically. They're starting to understand that now. It's starting to do more research, but it hasn't necessarily reached the treatment, you know, in the patient yet. But bitters is a very ancient tonic kind of medicine, and um, bitter taste receptors are in strategic places in throughout the body doing functional work besides tasting bitter. Um, other taste receptors like sweet and sour are going to also be kind of in other places in the body, but they might also just be monitoring the environment for whether there's enough, you know, energy level, enough sweet, or is it the pH correct, or is it getting too acidic or too alkaline? Um, but the bitter taste receptors are kind of like little machines that can do things for a cell. Um, and so they can help with blood sugar control. They can help with um, feeling satisfied after a meal. If we include some bitter tasting phytonutrients in our meal, like oregano or, or um, leeks, um, a darker chocolate is kind of stronger bitter, but it's also healthier because it has those bitter phytonutrients. The more processed mm. food, they take the bitter out because it's more kind of commercially acceptable, more bland, but that's taking out the phytonutrients too. Okay, and so um, when, when people listening to this and hearing about you and meeting you for the first time, I, I'm going to include in the show notes your website, your, your Substack, your Twitter, etc. But how could they learn more about what you do and what you offer as, as a nutritional specialist? Mm, well... Uh, to promote my own work, read my sites. I actually, I'm kind of public health mode of providing information for people to kind of look at and read on their own. And I know it'd be nice to have courses or finished books and stuff, but my work is not really all that finished in that way. But I have a lot of information on my websites. Actually, I have like seven or eight websites. Um, and the podcast, my last few podcast episodes are not very good, but the first part of the series, How Are You Feeling?, is all about learning to understand how food can affect your feelings and or how you can have a bad day or a good day based on yesterday's meals. Um, and so I have a lot of information is how you can use my information is just go look at what I have. Online. All right. So what I'm going to ask you to do then after we wrap up here is send me links, to whatever links that um, you feel the listeners would benefit for, by clicking on and then getting uh, motivated by the information you've learned. And I like the fact that you said your, your work isn't finished. Now, in, in the culture we live in, this high-paced capitalist culture, if you say my work isn't finished, it would sound like you're just not getting things done. But you, you, I'm hearing it as an acceptance that this is an ongoing process. There's not a finish line where someone says, oh, now I fully understand nutrition. I'm going to give you the 10 things you can do in a bulleted list. Do this and you're good. It's, you know, as you just mentioned about the taste buds elsewhere in your body, this is a cutting edge um, bit of research. Um, everybody is different. There is no um, single thing to say. And, I, and I'll, I'll give a little of my own experience here. I've worked in my life as a personal trainer. 
And when it comes to training, you mentioned how what you ate yesterday could decide today's mood, which is confusing to people because they might just, they might, even if they connect it to food, they might just connect it to their last meal. I would have someone walk into the gym that I was going to train and say to me, um, I have a, like a little, uh, cramp in my calf and then i would look down and say are those new sneakers oh yeah i just got them yesterday and i'd be like oh so you this is the first day the first 24 hours you're wearing them it's possible that they're you know that you're adjusting and i i find that that type of advice and what you're talking about is really the most practical stuff you can give because you're teaching people to get better better at understanding their needs in any health way. So it isn't like you, you're the keeper of these secrets that people go to your sites and say, oh, she has this figured out, but you're a guide pointing people in a direction where they can start figuring out and getting on this lifelong journey of recognizing that staying healthy is a never ending process and learning about it is a never ending process. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's a learning process. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been enjoyable speaking with you. Oh, absolutely. I, I appreciate this. I um, Again, please send me all your um, your links so I can make sure that people can check out what you're doing. And and thank you so much for making time to, to chat with us today. Great. Thanks. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you're getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. Obviously, Jennifer and I were talking a lot about this concept of process, where to learn how to care for yourself nutritionally isn't like just going to school, getting a degree, and you're done. It is a journey without an actual destination. There is no finish line. You are constantly learning and evolving, ideally. So I was glad that Jennifer shared this. She shared her expertise. She shared her hard-earned experience. And if you go to the show notes, she also shared links. But I think the most powerful message that we can take away from the conversation today is that you have to trust yourself and recognize the power inside you. You have the ability 
to be skeptical, to decode the propaganda, and to get in tune with yourself and find out what works for you now and keep an open mind, realizing that that will 100% that will evolve. So I thank you for listening as always, and I look forward to hearing from you about your own journeys in terms of taking responsibility for your health. So just keep your eyes and ears open, keep searching, keep being skeptical, and keep your guard up. <laughs>